Great. Okay, well, welcome everybody to uh, the third of our five sessions of the end of the beginning, the journey through Genesis with Rabbi David Silver. Um, as you uh, come into the Zoom room, I will invite you to become a panelist that if you choose to accept that little invitation pops up on your screen. It just means that if you wish, you can uh, turn on your camera so we can see your wonderful smiling faces. And when Rabbi Silber invites questions, you can unmute yourself and ask yourself. Um, we just ask that when you're not speaking, you keep yourself on mute. It just minimizes background noise so we can all hear each other. Um, as always, questions and comments are welcome in the chat, or if you're joining us on Facebook Live in the Facebook comments at any point. Um, in terms of sources, I will be sharing the sources uh, on the screen, um, but you are very welcome to follow along at home in your own Tanakh um, as you feel comfortable. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Rabbi Silva. Okay, thank you. All right, so we're in chapter 47, moving right along. Uh, the last thing we saw was Yaakov was brought before Paro, and uh, in the seventh uh, Pasuk, Yosef brings him, stands him up before Paro, and he actually blesses Paro. Exact, the precisely what the blessing is is not stated, it's not mentioned in the Chumash, but both verse seven tells us by Varech Yaakov and Paro, and again, in verse number 10, and of course, what we had in the, uh, the blessing is not stated, but Paro asks him a very strange question, how old are you? And Yaakov gives a remarkable response. Basically, what he says is not as old as you might think, but I've had a very difficult life. My years are few and bad, says Yaakov. And we discussed that last week. Um, Interesting. I remember in when I used to do a lot of flying around the country, teaching in different. I worked for many years uh, at a for a foundation. They would fly me around to different cities, and I would teach. Um, and on the plane, they were you know domestic flights, and not not seldom would the person next to me ask me a very personal question about themselves. They would tell me all kinds of things. I mean. And I think the reason was because there I am sitting there, they'll never see me again. The guy with the yarmulke and everything and complete, completely other. And just a sort of safe, safe space to say whatever you want. They would never say this to anybody that really, you know, who knows them, but they would say all kinds of, all kinds of questions. What should I do coming to New York? All kinds of things. Reminds me very much of Yaakov and Paro. And he said to Paro something you probably wouldn't say to anybody else, which is my years have been few and bad. Madhurahim, which is a take on one take on Yaakov's life. Objectively speaking, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, on the other hand, Yaakov accepts this role as part of the covenantal mission. But it is interesting that the Chumash includes this little speech that he says to, uh, to Paro. In any event, we're up to the 11th Pasuk of chapter 47. And this chapter deals with the way Yosef manages to supply food to the people of uh, people of Egypt. Um, now, remember that when the brothers came down, the last time the brothers came down and Yosef reveals his identity to the brothers, he encourages them to go back to their father, bring, come back, come down here to me, tell, tell our father 
and my father that I will take care of him and his children and his whole family. And he sends the wagons, Paro says, send the wagons. And Yaakov comes down with the family. On the way down, the God speaks to Yaakov and informs him what it's really about. We discussed that. And uh, when Yosef spoke to the brothers, he said to the brothers, come down, he says, there had been two years of famine. Joseph said, there are five more years of famine. You better come down, unless you become impoverished. That's what Joseph said back in the chapter where he reveals his identity. So he says, it'll be five more years. So we expect five years of famine. The problem is that when you read the rest of the chapter, it doesn't sound like there are five more years. This is a problem, actually. Uh, and what's interesting is that there was a well-known Midrash, it's also found in the Gemara, uh, I believe it's in Masechet Sota, towards the end, that when Yaakov blessed Paro, by Yavarech Yaakov with Paro, now this is not in the text, but the Medrash says that the blessing was when, Paro, when Yaakov comes down to Israel, the famine stops. So the various medieval commentaries wrestle with this Midrash. How can one fit the Midrash into the text? Um, we'll, 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 we'll see this. Actually, the Ramban says pretty much at the end of the Ramban, typically, basically you can't. I mean, the Pshad is not that way, but the Ramban will deal with the, with the number of years of the famine and we'll get to that later on. Okay, so let's begin now with verse number 11. Interesting verse. So Joseph settled his family, father and brothers. He gave them achuza. Here they translate holdings. I'll get back to the word achuza, which is a very important word. In the best of the land. And the white land, we know that we know what is Goshen, but here in this verse, in the region of Ramses, Ramses, of course, was one of the pharaohs, as Paro had, as Paro had commanded. So I wanted to focus for a moment on the word achuza. That's a word that's very important, both in Sefer Breshit and beyond. Remember, for example, because the question, of course, is this is the beginning of the experience of Egypt. This is the beginning of the, us, us being in Mitzrayim, the story of the suffering in Egypt, the Geirut, the Abdut, the Inui. It all starts when the family comes down to Mitzrayim and God won Jacob, God wants Yaakov. This is my plan, this is what I want. I'll, I'll bring you back, I'm, I'm gonna be with you. But this is the beginning and we understand and Yaakov understands this is the beginning of the, uh, of the story of, of Mitzrayim. So the point is that the brothers presumably could have left because, okay, Yaakov dies, but the famine is over maximally in five years. And they said actually to Paro, they told Paro, so this last week, we've come here to dwell temporarily because there's no food in the land of Canaan. We have no pasture for our flocks. So we came down here, but it's very clear. We came on it to be Gerim, to be temporary residents, which raises the question, of course, what happened? Because they're not temporary residents. They're there for a couple of hundred years. 
210 years, according to the rabbinic statements, and something like that, several generations. So how did that happen? So here we come to the word achuzah. The word achuzah, the word holdings is an excellent translation, where achos in Hebrew means to hold. But the word achuzah means something that you hold, and there are different kinds of land. The Torah speaks later, actually it's next week's parsha of the stay achuzah. Stay achuzah is something that land that's truly yours, not land you may have purchased from somebody. Land that was yours, land that perhaps when they divided up the land of Canaan, that was your portion. So that land in the, in the, in the Jubilee year, that land returns to the family. Somebody you never lose. It can't be sold in perpetuity. We remember, if we look back at Sefer Breshit, back in chapter 23, we remember that that because the death of Sarah. And yet Abraham goes to the people, B'nai Chet, and he says, listen, one of my wife has died. Tenuli achuzat kever imachem. Give me, says Abraham, achuzat kever. Not just the grave, kever is a grave, but achuzat kever, the possession of a grave. And in that story, and Abraham insists, he says, on paying for it. He doesn't want it for nothing. They say to him, you can bury your wife. Nobody will, will, will not allow you to bury your wife amongst us. You're, you're a prince of a man. You're Nesil Himata Betochen. But Avram doesn't want that. He doesn't want anybody to give him something. Someone gives you a gift. Psychologically, they may think it's still theirs. You, 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 I give you a place in my property. He doesn't want that. He wants to purchase it. And he makes it very clear. He doesn't want just to kever. He wants achuzat kever. And the term achuzat kever back in chapter 23 comes up three different times. Not just the kever, but achuzat kever. In fact, comes up three times. And the last time it comes up is the last, the chapter has 20 verses in it. In verse number 20 of chapter 23, after Avram purchases not just the grave, because the kever, because Ephraim says, listen, I'll give you the grave and I'll give you the field. Which, and when we studied it, we interpreted, I'll give you a grave, but you gotta buy the field also. The graves typically, if you, in Israel, for example, if you go to a kibbutz, they have a grave uh, a cemetery on the, in, the, in, the, in the kibbutz. It's at the edge of the, it's at the edge. Graves are at the edge of the field. You don't put the, the, the grave site in the middle of the field. Avram wants to purchase. Initially, he says, I'll buy the edge of the field. But Ephron says, no, I'll give you the grave and I'll give you the field. So Avram understands that to mean, I'll give you the grave if you take the field and I know you want to pay for it. And Avram agrees. He buys not just the kever, but he buys, he buys today Ephron. He buys them both. He pays a hefty price, 400 shekel keser. Good currency, a fortune of money. Graves don't cost that much. Fields may cost a lot. Graves don't. And the last verse is by Yochum HaSadev HaMora Ashebo Yavraham Lachuzat Kever. So the field, right? The field, the field, and the grave that's in the cave, which has the grave, she's buried in the cave, Morata Machbelah, Avram obtained them Lachuzat Kever, the possession of a gravesite. So this is very important. This purchase of Maratha Machpelah in the book of Breshit has enormous significance because it represents the ownership of the land. It's always symbolic at this point because the Canaanites are in the land. 
but Avram has purchased this place as symbolic, as a sign that this land someday will belong to Avram's descendants. In fact, at the, towards the very end of this book, when Yaakov speaks to his family, his final command is take my body after my death and bury me in the grave that was, that was purchased by Avram. At the very end, this is later on in the book, with the chapter, the end of chapter 49, I believe, let's just find that verse. The very end of 49, Yaakov says to them, by Yitzav Otam in chapter 49, verse 29, Aninasafalami, Kivru Otil Avotai, El Hamara, Shebisteya Pranachiti. Why did you bury me in that, in that cave that belonged once to Ephron? He goes on, he continues, he says, Ashekana Abraham in verse number 30, the one that Avram bought, Ashekana Abraham, the one that he purchased. He mentions the word, the term in verse number 30, so that's our possession. And this term comes up not only in which of course is of enormous significance, and it's basically Jacob's last words, but it also came up in a different context. In the context of the story of Shem, back in chapter 34, the story of Shem actually is the first conquest of the land, symbolic conquest of the land, problematic story. But in that story, you remember, so Dina is molested and she's dwelling in somewhere in Shem. Her precise where she is is not known to us in the beginning of the chapter. Um, but the people, so the Chamar and Shem want to, Shem wants to marry Dina and and, and they make a proposition, um, they make a proposition to Yaakov's family to, um, to, uh, to join together with them, to have a kind of partnership or to, to live together, to become one people even perhaps. So let's find this verse. So they, they say that they, in, they go to meet Chamar and Shem. Shem is the son, Chamar is the father, meet Yaakov and his, and his sons in chapter 34. And they're saying, listen, let's, let's marry each other. This is verse number um, nine. You give us your daughters. You'll take our daughters. And you live together with us. The land shall be before you. In verse number 10, Shavu Uschabua, you can dwell here, you can do business here. And acquire holdings in it. This was the offer to, 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 be, to, be, to have their achuzah, but not simply in the land of Canaan, because they'd be partners with and dwelling with and living with these Canaanites, these Chivites, one of the nations of Canaan. And of course, that doesn't happen. We know the story. There's a, the brothers massacre the town, take their sister out, etc. But there was the, the, the statement, which is rejected at the end. You become, you acquire holdings, but it's almost like you'll be, you'll be inside. You, you, it's more like the holdings acquire you. Be, be acquired through it. 
Now, what happened? So, what what happened over here in our story with uh, with the brothers? With the brothers, what happens over here? So, um, so he gave them an achuzah in the land of Egypt. And if you jump to the end of chapter, not the very end of chapter forty-seven, but chapter forty-seven, verse number twenty-seven, by Yeshev So Israel, first not to Israel himself, but the family, uh, dwelt in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, they acquired holdings. It's the same term, exactly. The last verse of this parsha, parsha's Vayigash, So in fact, notice that over here, the verse says not just the land of Goshen, but the land of Egypt. What happened was, in the course of these years, not many years, they became, they had a chusa. So they become, for whatever reason, maybe the financial success, maybe they're doing well, we'll see Joseph favors them. But in any event, then Paro wants them to stay there. They become, that becomes their achuza. And that's the problem. Because achuza, something you hold on to, also something that holds on to you. So it's going to be very difficult to leave. Once, you, once there's achuza, someone's grabbing you. Once it grabs you, it's very hard to leave. That's what happened. So this, this requires some more thought. And, but this is a very important point. Because it prefigures what's going to happen later. The difficulty in leaving Mitzrayim will be in the next book, because Mitzrayim is part of you. Because you are integrated into it, even though you're persecuted. But you're also part of Mitzrayim. So coming back to our verse over here, and notice that here in this verse, in verse 11, where we started this morning, um, it calls the land Eretz Ramses. Eretz Ramses, not Goshen, not just Mitzrayim, the land of Ramses. Perhaps the biblical reader knew well that Ramses is the name of one of the pharaohs. Maybe this pharaoh even, who knows? You don't know the name of power was a generic name, a title, but they're living in Ramses. Now there's something else about this verse. And that is that Joseph gives them according to Pharaoh's command. Pharaoh gives the command. They're living in Mitzrayim, the Metav Aretz, in choice land, Metav, from the word Tov. And we remember, actually, was you study the book and the, the way the Chumash works, it's all connected. So we remember, first of all, that when Joseph, after Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, Paro says, Paro jumps in, and Paro says, Tell them, um, tell the brothers, this is back in chapter 45, tell the brothers, Tanuit Birchem, load up, load up your animals, come, go back to Canaan, take your father, come to me. I will give you Tuv, the good of the land of Egypt, right? So Paro had said, Paro said, I will give you two of Mitzrayim, and, it, and, and actually power repeats it. In verse number uh, 20 of chapter 45, he said again, Don't worry about your, 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 your property. Why? Because the good of Mitzrayim will be yours. 
Sounds like a very generous offer on Paro's part. So the word tuv, when Paro says come down, I will give you the tuv. But when you read about Paro saying to the family, come down to Mitzrayim, I will give you the tuv. The reader, I think, immediately recalls the first time we went down to Mitzrayim. By that, I mean the first time in the book that a Hebrew goes down to Egypt. And that's back in chapter 12. That's when Abraham went down to Mitzrayim. And when Abraham went down to Mitzrayim, before he got there, he told his wife, listen, you better say that you're my sister. You're a beautiful woman. You're tovat mareh. You're tovat mareh. And they're going to kill me. And they're going to take you. So he comes down to Egypt. And then he, Abraham also added, please do this. That it be good for me. That it be told for me. And when they come down to Mitzrayim, the servants of Pharaoh, officers of Pharaoh see her. See she's tovat mareh. And they... She's taken. But to Abraham, it was good. What does it mean it was good? They gave him all kinds of gifts. So that story, actually, when you read the story, when Paro says, come down to Egypt over here, this is Paro, the so-called good, good Pharaoh. He says, come down, we'll give you what's told. But the reader, and of course, he said it early, he said it, and, he, and again, over here, as, as Paro had commanded, but the reader has, in the back of her head, that story about Avram going down to Mitzrayim, where it was told for him, but there was a cost. The cost was that Sarah was captured by, um, by, by, by the Pharaoh and will never be able to leave. God intervenes with plagues to get her out. So my point is that what the Chumash is setting up over here, appears to be a very generous, generous offer, but we remember what Mitzrayim is about. Unless we forgot chapter 12, that was a long time ago. We haven't forgotten chapter 39. Mrs. Potiphar, it's the same story. She picks up, she sees Joseph. And the moment she sees him, she wants to take him. Joseph resists, but he does end up in jail. And he'll never get out of jail if not for the coincidence or divine coincidence that there he meets two officers of Pharaoh. So the point is, that when you read the story here in light of what proceeds, that is to say, not just Mrs. Potiphar, but not just Pharaoh's statement back in chapter 45, but Avram in Mitzrayim, then the reader is wary. And in fact, that is what's going to happen. In point of fact, the very first chapter of the next book, not far away, is kill the boys and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and take the girls keep the girls alive, as the Ramban says correctly, means keep them alive, means take them. Make sure they stay alive so we can take them. It's exactly what happens to Abraham in chapter 12. So here, we are very wary about what could happen. In fact, what will happen. That's the verse number 11. Now we continue in verse 12. I'll stop in a little while and take comments or questions. Now we have the next verse. By Chalkel Yosef, so Joseph, by Chalkel, is an unusual word. Joseph is sustaining his father and his brothers and all the household. Lechem 
And even the little ones, he gave them food down to the little ones. Joseph provides them with lechem. There's no sense, of course, that Joseph is charging them anything. They don't have to pay for it. And we remember very well that when Joseph, they didn't know it was Joseph. When Joseph is doing all this manipulation with, with his brothers, the one thing he does on two different occasions is after they come down for food and he sends them away, he puts their money back in their sacks. He refuses to take money from them. And we discussed at some length what that's about. But on one level, what it's about is very simple. You don't take money from your brothers. You don't charge your brother who wants to, wants to eat food, doesn't have food. And Joseph over here is presumably doing exactly that. He's feeding them, gives all of them what they need. And there's no sense whatsoever that, uh, that they have to do anything. And Joseph had said, come down, I'm gonna take care of you. You'll be close to me. It's very clear. So that's it. So they all have lechem. They, they, they get exactly what they need. He doesn't give Desley too much. He's doing it properly according to the law, but they all get the food. And what's interesting is the next verse. The next verse says, But there is no lechem in the land. So the famine was very heavy. And the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, Batela was weakened, or they say languished over here on account of the famine. And my point is, you have two verses back to back. In the first verse, Joseph, the entire family of Joseph, father, brothers, nieces, nephews, who knows, the whole Mishbacha, is getting Rechem as they need it. And the very next verse starts, there is no Rechem, for the famine is very heavy. So here we have to ask ourselves the question, um, something to think about, which is, what do we make of this? That actually, on one hand, Joseph is caring for his own family, and we understand that. But on the other hand, there is no lechem. On one hand, Joseph's not taking any kesef from his family. He actually returned the money. But in the next story, we'll see, very next verse, actually verse number 14, Joseph gathered in all of the money, all of the money. Shever is the food. We talked about shever. It's a word that comes up many, many times in the Joseph narrative. And one thing we suggested about shever is food that you pay for. Food that you pay for. So you purchase, purchase the food. And all of the kesef was brought to Pharaoh. He doesn't keep the money himself. Commentaries speak of Joseph's honesty. He works for Pharaoh. He gives Pharaoh all the money. Nothing gets lost in, in transition. But again, we take note of the fact he's gathering all of the kesef. So in Mitzrayim, there's no, nobody has kesef. All the kesef is, has been handed over to Pharaoh. But the brothers, presumably, are getting food for no money. So again, we have this, I might say double standard over here. And um, the question is to what extent this will feed in to the, what's going to happen to the, uh, to the uh, family of Joseph, to the Jews in the land of Egypt, having been favored by Joseph. Does this play in in any way? I'm not saying yes or no, I'm simply raising the question does this play into the fact that at some point in time, 
the uh, Jews will be enslaved, not just by Pharaoh, but one can say by some extent, at least initially by the Egyptian people, by Yavidu Mitzrayim at B'nai Yisrael And again, the Chumash leaves it to our imagination, I think, as to whether all this factors in to the ultimate enslavement of the uh, family of Joseph in the land of Egypt. Okay, let me stop here for a moment. And actually we said a couple of things over here. Let me stop here if there are any comments or questions to this point uh, before we continue. So I'll just stop for a moment. The rabbis who gave the money, the other people that were not Jews, who gave the money that they collected? Everybody else except his family. You have to and pay for the food. Mm -hmm. Every, the, the brothers came down with money. You pay, you don't get it for nothing. You come down to Egypt and you pay money. Now the question is how much money do you pay? That's the mm -hmm. question. So well, I wanna talk about that in a couple of minutes. How much money do you pay? You have a complete monopoly. There's one guy who has all the food. His name is Pharaoh. I mean, Joseph works for Pharaoh and Joseph had said, collect all the surplus food in the years of plenty, put them in store cities and guard them. And then they will be a guarantee for the land, Picardon, Bishamaro, you guard them. So only one guy has food. So we don't have to be brilliant economists to understand when one person has all of the food, then that one person can determine the price because there is no competition, it's just one, source of food right. and at some point question is when the money will run out in the next verse the money's going to run out and no one has any more money the brothers also came down with money in fact when they came down the second time they returned the first money oh, they, oh no the guy says that no it's god gave you a gift i'm not taking your money but you have to pay that's shever you pay, you pay for the food yeah anybody else with a comment or question yes yes David, uh, um, um... Going back to the question of to the word ahuza, uh, yes. I took a peek at the third symbolic purchase of the land. Uh, David and Aravna Hayvusi at the end of the book of Samuel. And I, unless I miss something, there's no mention of the word ahuza or any variation thereof. What do we make of that? It's an important symbolic purchase of the land. It's the third one. Well, I would say there, I wouldn't expect ahuza in that case because that's not because that's not the purchase of the land. That's the purchase of the, um, of the uh, temple. And when it comes to the temple, actually, nobody really owns the temple. This whole discussion in the Gemara, who actually owns the place of the temple? So um, one, view is that, one view is that no tribe owns it. Nobody can ever claim it's theirs. I don't want to get into politics now, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But I think when people believe that sacred places somehow were theirs, I'll tell you one story, which is uh, one of my favorite stories. Um, there was a fellow named Clarence Jordan. I may have mentioned this story to you, but I'll mention it again. Clarence Jordan was the founder of a place called Colony. He's a very, very firm Christian. And um, during the yeah. Second World War, he opened this place up. People could work on it like a farm. Blacks, whites, paid everybody the same. It was right in the heart of Ku Klux Klan country, and he got all kinds of opposition would be a uh, understatement, sh shooting at him, this and that. Anyway, so he also was a pastor and um, a very, a, a real serious, serious Christian. And anyway, so he gave up the pastorship. One day he goes, Sunday morning, goes to church. And he had a friend from, from, from India who went with him, 
very dark skin. So the, uh, he's sitting in the church there and the, so the shamus comes over to him and says, uh, Reverend uh, Jordan, whatever, in our church, we don't have black people. To which Jordan replied, your church? I thought it was God's church. And that's the point, you see. I like that story very much. It applies not just to churches. It applies to synagogues and many other places too. No one owns God's place. No one owns it. If you believe that you own it, you got a major problem over here. So I don't expect the word Ahuza, because that's the temple. That's the holy place. That's God's place. Yes, God has chosen to reside in David's city. That's the point. But it's, it's actually God's place. Mm -hmm. And Jerusalem may be actually God's city in which David is allowed to live. That's what the book of Shmuel is, presents us with. So now I don't expect Ahuza to be found there. Okay, anybody else for a comment? Yes. Yes. Uh, talking about symbols, I want to ask a general question. You don't have to answer it right now. So what is the symbol of Egypt in Jewish history? I think that's a very complex look. Uh, the main, our main, our main, <laughs> focus in the Torah and our tradition, the main ritual of the Seder is the exodus from Egypt. That means Yitzhak Mitzrayim is the place of servitude. It's a place where God doesn't communicate. It's a place where in some of the prophetic writings, the Chumash less so, but in the prophetic writings, it talks about, even in the Chumash, Now it is true, by the way, that there are statements in the, in the prophets which present us differently. It talks about God redeeming Egypt. It talks about Egypt going into slavery themselves and God redeeming them. The Chumash says that you should not oppress the third generation Egyptian may, may become part of the Jewish community where you will restrain them in their land. So my short answer would be, it's complicated. I, I don't think it's any one particular way, but I think primarily, is the one thing we ought to remember in a, in a religion that in which memory is century, central, this is the thing, core thing to remember. Like, I, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. That's how the Ten Commandments start. But I think there's a lot more to be said about it. There is that other view that appears in some of the prophetic writings. And I think it's a very important question, but I, as you say, it's a big question, big answer, and that's the short answer. Anybody else with a comment? Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Uh, so the, who who's, was he? Joseph, uh, was his intention to give them a holding Ahuza in the land? It doesn't seem like Pharaoh wanted to give them an Ahuza. He wanted them to settle in Goshen. Here it says, Ramses, and is Ramses supposed to remember, remind us of the storehouses that were built in Ramses? A hint of something? I, yeah, um, well, I think that the claim that I've made is that Paro wants them to settle into Egypt because, because once they're settled into Egypt and they don't bring their own things with them, so they sort of lose their identity. I think that Paro does want them to become Egyptian the same way he wants, he wants Joseph because they're very useful to him. The, the, um, I'll touch upon this later, but what's very useful to the fact that Joseph is the outsider, the, the real outsider, he's the Ivory, is for somebody like Paro a big plus because they are dependent upon you. And because if anything ever goes wrong, you can blame it on the outsider. As we already saw in Mrs. Potiphar, look, he, look, look my, my husband brought the, the, the ivory to mock us, she says, not to mock me, but to mock us. So having the, the, the person who was completely dependent on you with no other resources, 
and with no other uh, backup plan is what Paro wants. So uh, yes, I think that Paro does want them to become, he says it, don't bring your, don't bring your own things, he says. Now, Joseph goes against Paro. Mm -hmm. Joseph wants the brothers to be near him. I don't know if Joseph wants to give them a chuzah. My point was, whatever Joseph wants or doesn't want, and Joseph says, stay here, there's five more years of famine. And Joseph, in the end, will say, get me out of here. But whatever Joseph may want, I think the point we have to take note of is that, in fact, they do, they do connect to the land in the deepest way, which is part of what, for whatever reason, maybe just that once you settle in a place and you're doing well, it's hard to leave. People, and it's going well for them and they have preferential treatment for the moment. Um, and people, even if they don't, find it difficult to leave their home. That's all people. We know that from our own history. Uh, so it's, again, what Joseph's thinking was, he does say five, five years. God said to Jacob, you're gonna be there for a while. It's my plan. And again, how it happens is a good question, but it does in fact happen that towards the end of this chapter, they became deeply enmeshed and connected to Mitzrayim. And that's the story of the next book, basically, but it begins already over here. Um, okay, let's continue then. Any, unless anybody else has a comment, we can always speak up. Let me, let's continue. I have with a, yes. I have a comment. I, I was just thinking that in the story of Eshet Potiphar, you might expect the story to use the verb vatochaz um, when she grabs at his... Right. At, his shirt and it's Vatik Fasehu, like a, kind of a failed attempt. And I thought that was interesting. That is interesting, actually. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering if, if, if the word Achuza <laughs> is ever used for a person. I'm, I, I have to check that out. But mm -hmm. your, your comment about Vatik Fasehu was a very interesting one um, because it's so related to Achuza. It's like almost synonymous with it. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Maybe, maybe Litfos is the kind of word you use when you talk about a person, to be tofaced a person. I don't know. We ever have the word Le'echoz? Do you have, have it with, it with Elisha and, and Eliyahu? I don't know. You have it with Moshe, with the snake, with the, with, with the, with the snake, with the mater. Isn't there about Sayochaz or something like that? You might be right about that. You know something? I, I, let me check that out. I'll, I'll, not now, but I'll check that out. Right, that's, that's, I think you could be right about that. Maybe you also with the Let me check it. I don't want to just talk. Yeah, that's a good comment. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, okay, let's continue now. So, <clears throat> verse number 13. Let's move ahead here. So, we saw that, right? <clears throat> There's no food in Mitzrayim, no food in Canaan. He brings the money to Pharaoh. Okay. Now the next verse. So the people come. Now, when do they come? Uh, it's the money gave out. We don't know when this happens. So here the commentaries are very much divided. The Ramban thinks that this happened actually at the end of the fifth year. In other words, the end of the five or seven years. Now, the first three years, there's a famine and the Torah doesn't tell us much. But now when we come towards the end of the famine in coming to year number six and seven, that's the Ramban's thinking. He says, that's the simple pshat. 
So they come to Joseph and they say, we have no more money. Why should we die? We have no money. We can't, we have no money to pay for the food. What should we do? So again, I just wanted to point out that there's no money because they're being charged a certain price. If you would charge a lower price, presumably, they would still have some money left. So this I'm suggesting is not an accident that there's no money. They're charging a price and that price is such that before the seven years of famine are over, there will be no money. And the people say to Yosef, give us, give us lechem. Lechem doesn't mean, just mean bread, it means that which sustains you. Provisions, all kinds of food. We have no money. So what does Joseph say? By Yom Yosef, <coughs> so Joseph says to them, Havu miknechem, so Joseph says, okay, you have no money, but in lieu of money, you can bring your, your animals, your cattle. Doesn't mean only cattle, but I mean all kinds of animals. Because in the next verse, it says, by your view at Miknehem or Yosef, by Tenlehem Yosef, Lechem, Basusim, Vimiknehatzon, Vimikneh Bakar, Vachamorim, by Inalem, Balechem, Bachom Miknehem, Bashnahi. That year, let's say it's the sixth year of seven. Let's follow the Ramban. They have no money. Oh, you have no money. So give us all of your, all the animals, the horses, the sheep, the cattle, whatever, everything. Now, all the livestock. I just want to remind all of us that when the brothers came down to Egypt and Joseph sent the delegation to Paro, and Joseph said, Paro's going to say, what do you do for an occupation? Tell them we are shepherds. And he's going to say, okay, stay in Goshen. Paro doesn't say that. Paro makes them beg. What do you do for a what's your what's your what's your occupation? Oh, we're shepherds. We're shepherds. Our our parents have been shepherds. Our ancestors are shepherds. And the next step is supposed to be. Paro says, "Okay, then stay in Goshen. It's a good place for, for cattle." He says nothing. He says, "Uh huh, interesting." And then they say, "Please let us stay in the land of Goshen. We come here temporarily, etc." Which Paro said to Joseph, "They've come to you. They can stay in Goshen." Then Paro added, "And if you know." that they are valiant men amongst them, you may place them offices on the mikneh which I have. Now, there was no statement that in the story to that point that power has a lot of mikneh. So we can take that as a hint to Joseph as to what power wants. We have to remember that the first dream of power was about the cows, the seven cows. That's his first dream. And what power was saying to Joseph in effect is, you remember my dreams, don't you? I appointed you to make my dreams come true. So the mikne, the various animals, the livestock, when I get all the livestock, maybe your brothers are good at overseeing that. Maybe they have good administrative ability. You have terrific administrative ability. And here we have exactly that. Here we have Yosef saying to, um, to the people of Egypt and Canaan as well, presumably, no money? Okay. Then give Pharaoh, you really gave Pharaoh all of the money. But I'll give, I'll give you bread, I'll give you food, we'll be able to survive for cattle and sheep and all the other livestock. So that's in, that's, that takes place, let's say, in the sixth year. And the next verse is, when that year was over, they came the next year and they said, we can't, we can't hide it from you, the truth. 
We have no money. We have no livestock. We got nothing left. We have our bodies, our persons, and we have our land. And therefore, we, have no, we can't pay for the food. Why should we die? Without food, we will die. We'll die, and our land will die too. So please, let us, uh, let us, in return for our land and our persons, give us bread, give us lechem. And we in our land shall be in servitude to Pharaoh. And give us, give us seed. And we will live, not die. And the land will not die. The land will not become a waste. So here, <coughs> he has all the money. And now he has all the cattle. And now when the people say, we have no money, we have no cattle. What about our land? Otherwise, we will die. So here, the argument that what we studied earlier, the Joseph narrative. So what I suggested was that these were Pharaoh's dreams. First dream is the dream of cattle. And the second dream is the dream of land. And this previous story just before that, the story that leads into the dreams of Pharaoh at the end of chapter 40 is the hanging of the person in charge of the lechem, the Sarha Ophim. And Pharaoh's dreams, I suggested, are connected to the fact if he executes the man in charge of lechem, he means that Pharaoh is not in control of the lechem. And that's his dream. And the one who understands how to give Pharaoh what he wants, which is total control. The money, the cattle, and the land will be the one that Pharaoh will appoint to carry out the program of saving Egypt and saving Egypt of empowering Pharaoh. And the only question I think one can ask, the claim that I made, which one can question, I think, is, this is what does happen in effect. Remember when the people went to Pharaoh at the end of chapter 41, they were starving for food and Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. Do what he tells you to do, a very strange verse. What do you mean do what he tells you to do? Put the money on the table and you get your food. What's there to tell him? But of course, now we understand what power was getting at. You do whatever he tells you to do, which is gonna take your money, He's going to take your cattle. And he's going to take your land. And the only question one can ask is, this is what does happen. And the question is, to what extent was this plan from the very beginning? To what extent do we have an agreement, as it were, between Joseph and Paro? <clears throat> it's all fixed from the very beginning. Or to what extent is this an unforeseen event that takes place later? The claim I made <clears throat> was that this is actually from the very beginning that Joseph who understands what power wants, he's able to interpret the dreams in such a way that yes, he does save Egypt. He does save people, otherwise they will die. And one could even make the argument that the only way to do it is to empower Paro. It's a good question. But that's the question, is this, is this the thought from the very beginning? This is the plan <coughs> or something that takes place later? And the second related question would be, what does the Torah think of this? In effect, what's happened is Paro is going to control everything. What is the Torah's uh, opinion about what Joseph has done? 
one could make the argument that this is necessary, that the only way to, it's like politics, you know, you, you make all kinds of deals and because politics is the art of the possible. So it's the only way to get something done is to make deals. So you make all kinds, you hold your nose and you make deals. And some deals are so odious they shouldn't be made, but that's one way to read it. Uh, the other way to read it is, and the ones who will succeed who know what, what, what the king wants and know what the king wants and use that basically to also bring some good into the world. I think the, the Megillah Esther, which is based on the Joseph story is exactly that. In the Megillah, it's interesting, in the Megillah, Achashverosh, who's the, the real villain. I mean, he's the one who controls everything. And one thing Esther never says to Achashverosh is, you know, you're a bad guy. It's always someone else who's the bad guy. Who's the wicked one who wants to kill us? Haman, the wicked Haman wants to kill us. Well, maybe he's, he is wicked, but he has no ability to kill anybody. He's no power. The only person that ever tells Achashverosh off in the Megillah is Vashti. I'm not doing it. He refuses. And she ends up being deposed, minimally deposed. So that's the reality of the Megillah. That's the world. So the question is, what do we make of the Joseph story? I will get to that because I do think the Chumash has a critique of Joseph. But I think it's actually very complicated. And that's what happens when you deal with Paro and you deal with, the, with this kind of a culture. You end up making a deal. And the question then is, what kind of deal does Joseph make? The commentaries believe, some of them certainly, I, you never can know if it's really the Peshat or an apologetic, but they do think that Joseph actually makes it, given the circumstances, makes a good deal for the, for, for, for the people. The people certainly see it that way. They praise Joseph, you've kept us alive, you've saved us, etc. But it's a question what the people think and what the Chumash thinks. Okay, okay before we continue, let me, for any comments or questions, I'll take them now and then we'll try to, I just wanted to say that interestingly enough, although the uh, story of Achashverosh is based on Paro, that there is no equivalent of the character of Haman in the Yosef story. That is true. There no, is no that is very true. There is no real equivalent to Haman. I would yeah. say, I've said many times myself, the Megillah is Yosef plus, uh, plus, uh, plus uh, Amalek. Haman is Amalek, and that doesn't figure. There's no Amalek in the, in the, in the Mitzrayim story. I mean, Paris, right, the that, is, that is very true. That the big antagonism, I think, is between Yosef and his brothers, rather than with the, any Goish character. Don't you think so? Right, no, I, well, that's the focus, is building the family. But for whatever reason, there is no Amalek, that's for sure. Amalek is a, is a separate piece of, is a separate piece of, um, Separate piece of the, of the, of the and a very central piece of the Megillah, obviously. Uh, but yeah, anybody else? Uh, yes. Is it possible that uh, uh, Joseph understands uh, Paro's dreams because that really is Joseph's dream? It's to have power and to have temporal power and to be in total control. And so Joseph's it's dreams that, and Paro's dreams. It's actually dream. the same dream. How we go beyond? It's the same dream. He understands Joseph's dream about power is. Whoever controls the sheaves, controls the, you bow down to, not, they bow down to Joseph's sheaves. So that if you control the food, people have to eat. Joseph understands Paro's dreams perfectly. It's his own dream. He's exactly the same dream as a kid. Though, if you control all the food and, you, and no one can go anywhere to the food except to you, 
going to have to bow down to you and do whatever you want because the alternative is, as, it, as the people say, why should we die? Can't live without food. There's only one source of food. And so Joseph understands it from his own experience. It, it raises actually another question about the dreams in general in the Bible. To what extent, because the dreams, see, Joseph sees the dream as God is speaking to Joseph, which may certainly be true, but God speaks to people through a certain filter, which is their own personality. So it's, it's true that God is speaking to Joseph in a sense, but God speaks through Joseph. Joseph himself understands power, understands the use of power, understands how one gets power. So sure, he says to power, of course I understand your dream. I had the same dream. I was 17 years old, exactly the same dream. Yeah, that's a very important point. Yeah, what else? Anybody else? Yes, I just wanted to know how one is going to, it, it, can one apply this when you're teaching a junior high of children, this back and forth about Paro, it becomes a little bit, you know, difficult, uh, you know, delineating the role of Paro. It, well, it needs to be something that, or can you When you're teaching, the question is, the question is when you're teaching different audiences, um, Little children, junior, middle school, high school, etc. One must always take into account what people are able to hear. It's it's an educational question, and again, it depends on. Not all junior high school kids are the same. Are coming from the same place. I think the teacher has to understand what what the people in in the classroom, where they're coming from, what they know, etc. What I don't think we should do, though, is ever say something that's not true. In other words, I think it's one thing to, to um, not to go deeply into certain uh, aspects of a story which people can't yet understand. I mean, but to say that, you know, to read the Chumash and say that, well, Yaakov's a tzaddik and Esav is a Russia back in chapter 27, I would never do that because the Chumash, that, that's counter to what the Chumash actually seems to be saying. So I think the question in the really the art of teaching, part of it is to figure out what people are can actually hear what they're at what stage in their lives they are able to to process what's being said, how they're going to take it, etc. How they're going to understand it. There's always a human element in teaching, but then that obviously, as a teacher, that's something which is really very central. When you're teaching adults, you know, it's one thing, and when you're teaching people and even adults, it depends where they're coming from, and you know, so it's it's a, it's it's not a simple matter. But I think that's one of the great questions about teaching, you want to give, what do you want to give your students? You want to give them skills to learn. You want to give them a, a love of learning. You want to give them a real sense about what the book's about, nuance to some extent, but it depends on the age of the, the, age of the student. That's the, you know, so that's a whole world of, of it. It's a world of education. That's, I don't, I don't consider myself an expert in that area, but I, I'm, but I'm married to an expert and I'm familiar with some of the issues when it comes to, to education in general. Okay, let me, let me, let's continue. We still have some time here. <clears throat> I wanna move forward with this. So anyway, this is what they say to Joseph. They say to Joseph, they say to Yosef, take us our land and our person for Pharaoh. They're the ones that suggest it, not Joseph. So let's see what Joseph says. Well, why should we die? Fine. First number three, by Yiken Yosef at Kol Admat Mitzrayim Lefaro Ki Machlu Mitzrayim Ish Sadeu so Joseph gains possession, he purchases all of the farmland of Egypt for Paro. Every Egyptian having sold his field, 
because the famine was too much for them. And then the last words of this verse, so the land became Pharaoh's. The land passed over to Paro. And when you read that statement, with Paro, you know, you can't, I think, it's this week's parasha. You can't actually, when you read the Chumash, read the Bible, and you can't forget the verse that we have in this week's Torah reading, where God says that the land returns in the 50th year, three words, for the land is mine, says God. You're not allowed to sell the land in perpetuity. That would suggest it's your land. But it's not your land. It's God's land, right? Don't make the mistake, it's your land. Your land? No, it's God's land. And here it says that the land belongs to Pharaoh. I think there's no way to read that except as a, as a, as a critique. What, what, what's happened is something very negative. Now, one could still make the argument that there was no other way. That this was what had to be done. But the end, de facto, these three words suggest something, I believe, quite negative. Having said all that, we'll see exactly how Joseph does it. And I think there's a lot of merit to the commentaries who say that given this, Joseph does it in, a, in, 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 in the kindest kind of way he could. But let's just take a look and see what happens now with the remainder of this little piece of the story. This strange verse. He removed the population literally to the cities. Here the translation is town by town. He removed them. Now, what is that about? About removing the population. So what it sounds like is, what it sounds like this, the land belongs to Paro. One could read it, and I think this is a viable reading, that what Joseph is doing is, he's moving people off the land. In other words, because people are gonna work the land, but not necessarily their own land. Or maybe he moves them to such a place where they can get food more simply. It's very hard to know. But at the end of the day, the point is that at least in, in theory, in theory, all the property belongs to Paro, except for the priests, the Kohanim, it all belongs to Paro. So everybody who's working the land is a kind of sharecropper, essentially, because it's no longer your land. The land is owned by, you know, company town. The land is owned by the company. The company is Paro. And you work, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a worker, you're a sharecropper on Pharaoh's land. Now the question is how much does a sharecropper take and how much does a sharecropper hand over? So that's a different question. Let's first, let's just finish this section. It says, The only land that's not purchased was the land that the Kohanim have. The priests of Egypt have their own land. So let's leave, let's, let's leave this verse out for now. There's some kind of exception here for the priests. We'll get back to the priests later. But apart from the priests, the people have to sell their land. And now we have Yosef talks to the, to the people. So I have purchased you. You are now, are you Pharaoh's slaves or Pharaoh's workers? Not clear. I've purchased you and the land for Pharaoh. Here is seed. You can sell the land. So here's what happens. When you sow the field, 
when you reap the field, you shall give a fifth to Paro, one fifth, 20%. So this verse actually, this is the verse that the medievals focused on, is actually quite interesting. It's not what we would expect. Because normally if I have land and you work my land, let's say you're a sharecropper, presumably you get some percentage of the land, some percentage of the profit, but it wouldn't be 80% for you and 20% for me. Presumably it will be something like the reverse. It's my land, it's my company. So the, most of the profits go to me and my workers get some percentage. In this case, it's 20%. And they point out that Joseph reverses it, that Joseph gives chamishit le paro and four, and four, really four hands, 80% goes to you for the purpose of purchasing seed and to eat and to feed your households. So to that extent, one can see Joseph's behavior as very favorable for the Egyptians. And the people do respond that way. They say to Joseph, you have kept us alive. We let us find favor in your eyes. They say, they call themselves Avadim Leparo. Right. But Yosem will tell Yosef and says the Torah, up until this very day, it is such that the land is owned by Pharaoh. He gets a fifth. Except for the land of the priests, that is not, that does not go to Pharaoh. So what's interesting is, I want to come back to this one-fifth business. First of all, the number the number five we have seen now over and over again, the number five is a number that the Torah has identified with, with, with Mitzrayim. But in particular, there's something else very interesting here about giving one-fifth to Paro. And that is, which supports what I suggested earlier, because when, um, when Yosef is brought to Paro to interpret the dreams, so Yosef says to Paro, I'm, we're going to interpret your dreams. And then Joseph says, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, back in chapter 41. It's one, you had two dreams that are one, it's all the same dream. And then Joseph says, take all the food in the years of plenty and store it under your control, right? Um, let's find that verse. Yes, chapter 41, verses, uh, was it 33? 33 and 34. Says Joseph, You should appoint a very wise person. And put him over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh should appoint officers over the land. Here they translate to strengthen. He should strengthen the land of Egypt in the seven years of plenty. But now suddenly when you read our chapter, has another meaning, which he hinted, which is now when you go back and read that chapter, not you will strengthen the land of Egypt, but you will divide it into a fit, into fifths. Because at the end of the day, what does Joseph do? 
the Ishnavon Vechacham is Joseph. The food is stored under Pharaoh. He gets the cattle, dream number one. He gets the land in number two. And on top of that, all the land of Egypt belongs to Pharaoh to the extent that one-fifth is given to Paro. Four-fifths the people can keep. That's Joseph's, uh, Joseph's, uh, Joseph's judgment, Joseph's rule. And the people were grateful for that. But the land on the books all belongs to Pharaoh and one-fifth of it goes to Pharaoh. So I, I do believe that when you read chapter, our chapter 47, in light of what Joseph said in 41, it's very clear that everything Joseph said in 40, doing in 47 is the fulfillment of chapter 41. The only question would be, was that the initial plan? And I suggested that yes, I think that's understood from the very beginning. And that's why Pharaoh was so excited about Joseph. He understands that Joseph will carry out exactly what Joseph says he will carry out down to the last point. And yeah, and Joseph does it. All the money goes to Pharaoh. He doesn't keep it. No, none goes to Joseph. All the money goes to Paro. And it's done in such a way, the price is such that by the time the seven years are over, the dreams of Pharaoh will have been, will have been fulfilled. <clears throat> hey, let me take, let me stop here for a moment for the last word and take comments or questions. And we're coming up to Parshat Vayechi, which is, of course, the blessings of Jacob. Those are 48, 49, and 50. We're not going to finish it in this round next time. We will, but those are the great chapters, the conclusion of Breshi. Okay, but let me stop you for a moment and take comments or questions. Then we will continue. Um, people should feel free to unmute themselves if they have a comment or a question, or if you put it in the chat, I can read it out. Okay, there's nothing in, there's no okay. questions in the chat. Okay. Um, just a, an interesting comment from Noah who says the first recorded tax rate in ancient Egypt was 20% of grain. A coincidence, I'm sure. It's a good fun fact. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. That is a very interesting point. Yeah. I know if it's a coincidence or that's known by the Torah, who knows. But in any event, um, yeah, I mean, it's, but in, in principle, yes, well, in principle, he owns everything. That's Joseph's decision. In principle, he owns everything. And this is, and the Chumash says, up, up, up until this very day, whenever that is, it's all to Paro. And the people are grateful. They expected a lot worse. And the people themselves said, we'll be slaves. So you know, Abedim the Paro. Except for the, except for the Kohanim. It's interesting, by the way, that the Kohanim, that in the Chumash, it sounds like the Torah, the Torah may be responding to this later on. See, over here, it sounds like no one has land. No one owns land. The only people that own land is the priestly caste. So, so they actually, <clears throat> Pharaoh allows them to own land. That's his chok, right? Fine. In the Chumash later, it's the opposite. Everybody owns land except for the priests. The tribe of Levi has no land. The tribe of Levi is depending on people's gifts. And there are different kinds of gifts. The Levium get a tithe, a tenth, okay? They get other gifts as well. <coughs> It's actually very interesting that in the Chumash, the, those that serve God, the, those are what, whose main role is to serve, 
they have no land of their own, but then it's incumbent upon everybody else to, uh, to support them, to give them the, the cities of the Levium, they don't even have cities, but the cities of the Levium were given to them by the other tribes. It's exactly the opposite of what you have in the tribe. And you got to wonder whether there's a point here about Chumash is making a point that actually we are doing precisely the opposite of what we encountered in the land of Egypt. And coming back to a previous question about Mitzrayim, how we remember Egypt, what is certainly the case is that when the Chumash describes the ideal society that the Torah was to set up, it puts it in terms of, do not replicate what you yourself suffered at the hands of, at the, hands of, hands of, of the Egyptians. When you were in Mitzrayim, you were a gale, you were a slave, you were oppressed, etc. You were taken advantage of, you were treated differently. And the Torah says over and over again, you have to be extra kind to the gear. Why? Because you were strangers, so you, don't, you should know better. Don't impose on the other guy what you yourself suffered. So in one way to read the whole experience of Mitzrayim is exactly that point. That through our own experience, we learn something about, we understand what it means to be in the situation of the stranger. And we don't want to impose that upon people who live amongst us. That, that, that's a pretty central point in the Chumash. So one can wonder in general whether other rules of the Torah are in fact, you know, responding in a sense to what we experience in the land of Egypt. The person who actually talks in general about the rules of the Torah, the mitzvot, being to some good extent simply a response to what we encountered in our, in our own experience, both in Egypt and the land of Canaan. But remarkably, the one who says this, sounds a very modern idea, don't wear, don't wear shatnays because the priests of Canaan or whatever, they wore shatnays. That of course famously is the, uh, is the Rambam. The Rambam and his guy. He sets out, he posits that every mitzvah has a reason. There's no such thing as a mitzvah having a reason. That's crazy, says the Rambam. Who would think such a crazy idea? He asked another person, why do you do this? And the person said, for no particular reason. You say the person's an idiot. So the Rambam says, so how can you say that the God's commandments have no reason? What? So they all have reasons, but the reasons the Rambam gives sometimes are very situated in, in a certain point with, 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 within history, which is why others who believe there are reasons open to like the Rambam's reasons. But the Rambam does believe, so the, the larger question would be to what extent what we encounter later, the way the society is to be set up, et cetera, is in response to what we have over here. And as I mentioned before, in this week's parasha, the land returns in the Jubilee year to the original owner, the state Achuza. The Achuza returns because it's not yours to sell forever, because it's not yours. But the land is not, doesn't belong to Kiwi Haaretz. No, the parole then has to be, I think, one must read it critically as a, a big negative. Okay, we have just a I couple of minutes. Yes. I think Debbie has a question. Debbie, feel yes. free to yes. unmute yourself. Um, I wanted to say that it's also interesting that the priests in Egypt were very, were involved with death. And the Kohanim of us were, right. are totally not it's also it, it seems like a you know a black and white type thing that yeah, that's, that's it, very true that is very true that death is very very central in i'm no expert in egyptology but that is certainly the case 
They were, the, um, you know, the Book of the Dead, the Cult of the Dead. No, for, no, for sure, hundred percent. That's for sure. And as one could argue that the former was a towards like the opposite, of course. The Cohen right. can't come in contact with the dead altogether, right? And we're Cohen constantly Gado, told that was old family. The Cohen Gado, right? are not with any dead. So that's another good point. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to be said about this as well, because look, the central story of the Torah is being in Mitzrayim, and the Yitzhak Mitzrayim is is the core story. So that's you know, and which are, which we are to remember constantly. Even Shabbat is Zechu Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So so with the festivals, etc., and many of the other rules. How and do you we treat are the other person. Right, we are constantly told Lotasu Kamase Mitzrayim. Right, exactly. And, the and Egypt the was that's known. Sure. Egypt was known for bread. And we're, you know, told on Pesach not to have any, you know, it's to make a total break from it. That's what they prided themselves on. They had discovered that or invented that, whatever. So I think the larger point is certainly, that's a very important point. And it's, it's interesting to think about it now. We, we get to we read through the rest of the Chumash, you always go back to Mitzrayim to see to what extent. I think that's very, I think the, the big, it's a big point about it. The way the covenant gets formulated is, in terms of not replicating what you yourself suffered in Mitzrayim and not imposing it on the other fellow, which is, okay, I guess almost time is almost up. We have a say out there, like a million things going on in Trish. I'm gonna stop it in one minute. Let's just read the last verse. By Yeshev Yisrael, Be'eretz Mitzrayim, Be'eretz Goshen. So Israel means people of Israel. They called Israel, it's the brothers, but Israel dwelt in Egypt, in Goshen. Right, they became connected to it in the deepest way. And they multiplied, multiplied greatly. I just want to make one last comment before we stop. But next week we'll start with Parshas my favorite Parsha. And um, you know, God had said to Yaakov, "Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation." So part of going into Mitzrayim. It's going to be the place where, the, where the, the nation gets built. The nation gets built in the land of Egypt. And the nation, the family gets built in the house of Laban. It's another parallel between the two. And this verse sums it all up. Verse number 20. On one end, they became deeply attached to Mitzrayim. That's got to be a negative. On the other hand, they multiplied greatly, which is part of the promise of so this verse actually sets the stage, of course, for what is to happen in Mitzrayim. We will multiply in terms of numbers as a people, a family becomes nation in the beginning of Exodus. On the other hand, can we ever get out of Mitzrayim? We, 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 we are attached to it in a very deep way. And that has all kinds of negative implications, both in terms of culturally, can we physically leave? And culturally, how much of the culture of Mitzrayim have we, will we assimilate during the, the long sojourn in the land of Egypt? So next week we will begin with Vayechi Yaakov, Geretz Mitzrayim. We're not gonna finish the book in two sessions and we don't wanna finish it in two sessions, there's so much there. But this will be a very, really very interesting in its own right and also thinking about the book of Breshit in general, the conclusion of Genesis. So I'll stop at this point. So looking forward to next week. There's a whole bunch of other things going on today. So anyway, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silva, and thank you everyone for being part of this session with your questions and your comments. Excellent as always.
we have a lot going on this week, as Rabbi Silver just said. Um, coming up in just a few minutes at 11.30, we will be celebrating International Women's Talmud Day. Please join us. We also have um, a bunch more opportunities to learn with Rabbi Silber at Drisha, both on Thursdays um, at 9 a.m. Eastern. We will be continuing um, our, mich our Mishnah class on Tractate Nazir with Rabbi Silber. And at 12.30 Eastern, um, he will, this week he will be joy joining Noah Batmiri, uh, known to us for her fun ancient Egypt facts in the chat um, for this week's edition of Conversations on the Parsha. Um, just a quick reminder that uh, this summer's virtual Colel application deadline has been extended to May 15th, so you've still got another week and a bit to get in your applications for this summer and you can find out about all these programs all these applications and register for all of the classes at drisha.org and with that see you next week thank you so much thank you thank you thank you